You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, Michael woke up next to a woman that he didn't really know. He put a hand over his eyes, and he had a few moments to reflect on his life. Now at 23 years old, he had had in his past some church experience. He accepted Jesus at a camp, and he attended church even as a young adult now, semi-regularly. He knew that the life that he was currently living wasn't exactly the fulfilling life that God wanted for him. And, and he was living like the culture. And he was living like his friends. And he was living like the world. And he wondered, like, I, I wonder if I could just start over, if I could just do better, if I could live right, if I could make my life count and have some kind of impact I want to make the world a better place, he thought to himself. I want to make the world a better place filled with more justice. And he asked the question, he's like, how do I step back into relationship with God? Is it all up to me? And maybe for some of you, as you're here today or watching online, you're asking the same question. How do I step back into relationship with God? Maybe just a year of being uh, in California here, a church that couldn't meet live in person has affected your relationship with God. And you're asking, how do I step back into a relationship with God? Is it all up to me? How do I step back into being what the Bible talks about in the Beatitudes that we're looking at in this series? How do I step back into being the blessed Well, Jesus launches his public ministry, and he goes up on a mountainside. He begins with the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to teach the people, and he begins to introduce a new idea to them about the blessed who are, in fact, part of the kingdom of God. There could be this place, this destination that you could take your life, that you could follow Jesus, and he will lead you into being the kingdom of God. And he uses this unique word, blessed. And there are eight Beatitudes And it's weird for us in English when we hear the word beatitude because we think it has to do with our attitude, like the condition of our heart only, like it's an attitude we're supposed to have. And that's just an English misnomer. It doesn't make sense because beatitudes are sayings that describe the authentic Christ follower and their joy and their good fortune and their secure reward. Now, a lot of people don't feel blessed. And maybe you've gone through some traumatic experiences in the past or in the past year or in the past few days and you just feel like, I just need a break. I just need a break in my life. I just, when is this all gonna stop? And as is the case with trauma, when that hits, sometimes you and I distance ourselves from God. We're like, God, come here, but we also are stiff-arming him. God, I want you. I desire you more than anything else, but you're also stiff-arming him a little bit. And you've distanced yourself from God. And you've tried to behave your way into a closeness with God. Have you ever tried to do that? Behave your way into a closeness with God? Try to get closer just by behaving right, by being right. Well, here's why you need today's sermon. Sin management is not the same thing as a relationship with God. It's not the same thing. So how do you and I step back into actual relationship abiding with the Father, living close to Jesus. How do we do that? 
And Jesus uses this word blessed, and blessed describes the state of what already exists, not what you hope it will be, but what already exists right now. And he's talking about those who are of the kingdom of God, that they are in fact blessed. And that is what they are. It describes the secure joy, the good fortune, and the security that a believer in Jesus Christ has, irrespective of their circumstances, and irrespective of how they feel blessed in the moment. It's what they actually are. So with that in mind, let's look at the third and fourth Beatitudes of Jesus. If you have your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 5 and 6. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And the third Beatitude Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, should not be meant to be understood to mean, you know, if you're meek, then you're going to inherit the earth. It's not an if this, then that. Blessed describes a state of what already exists. It already exists, that the meek are going to inherit the earth. It should be understood to mean this. Look at the authentic spirituality and stability and joy, right? The blessed Look at the blessed of those who will, in fact, inherit the land. Write this down if you're taking notes today. The meek are those who humbly seek God, not too bold or not too timid. The meek are those who are going to inherit uh, the land. They're the people who are going to seek God humbly. They're not being too bold about it, not too timid. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, in the Bible, it actually is translated, they will inherit the land. And there's something about the land, right? The earth. In Israel's history, the land referred to the promised land. This geographical, local location that was given to the people of Israel, that those are going to be their land, their inheritance, if you will, from God. And it referred to that promised land. But as the church launched out after the ascension of Jesus, the land was understood to mean the entire earth, that the kingdom of God was available to all, all over it. The, the vision was no longer just simply the land. It, Jesus made it clear that we would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. No longer was just the local promised land to Israel the vision. It was now the kingdom of God. And in fact, we see this in a lot about the land in the Old Testament. In Psalm 37 verse 9, says, For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Right? The land is a big deal. In Psalm 37 11, it says this, But the meek will inherit the land. See, the, the idea that Jesus just introduced is not a new idea. In the Old Testament, as people were hearing Jesus, they're thinking, oh, he's referring back to the Psalms, to the writing of David, where he said, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. And they're like, we want that. Yes, we want the land. We want our local location. We want peace. We want prosperity. There's just something about land, isn't there? Have you ever wanted to buy some land out in the country, or you wanted to have an apartment or a condo or a home. You actually want to buy a home because to you it meant like, I actually have like the land. 
well, we affectionately call the land of Israel, the promised land, we call it affectionately the fifth gospel. There's only four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when you go to Israel with us and you walk the land firsthand and you get to see the land, we call it the fifth gospel because suddenly your eyes are open, your mind is expanded, and you understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John far better than you would have if you've never walked the land. That there's something about being there in Israel to actually go in there. And for some of you, you might want to just earmark that as that is on my wish list. That is a forever trip I want to go on. I want to go there someday and actually physically walk the land of Israel. And if you're going with us, our next trip will be in December of 2022. So about a year and a half from now, and you'll hear more details as that time gets close. But if you are a person who wants to know exact dates, it's December 11th through 22nd of 2022. And the beautiful thing is literally, you'll be walking the land. Literally five days before Christmas, you will be walking with your feet in the little town of Bethlehem. Right at Christmas time, the lowest traveled time in the Holy Land. And you'll get to walk the land and you will understand the Bible in far greater ways. Why? Because you walked the land. There's something about the land Psalm 37 verse 29 says this, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. There's always something about land. I mean, it's so easy for the land itself to become the mission, the land itself to become the vision. Any company that's looking to expand, they're looking to say, hey, if we can just put our new facility in this location and all of a sudden all the energy and all the resources get pushed into that location and they look forward to having a location of their own. Sun Grove Church is 30 years old, and after being mobile for 13 years, uh, it was during that time of mobility where it was set up and tear down every weekend in a high school that Sun Grove had bought property in Elk Grove, an actual 18 acres right in kind of the heart of Elk Grove. And for a lot of the people at Sun Grove, because they were mobile every weekend and it was set up and tear down every weekend, the vision in a sense had by default become the land that the land had become the vision. If we could only just build on our land, when can we develop our land? In fact, at one point, people in the church were given little vials of dirt from the land as like a symbol that, hey, maybe someday we're gonna build on the land. And the land had become the mission, the land had become the vision. When we arrived uh, in 2009, and we began to look at the needs of the church, we realized that the vision doesn't need to be the land. The vision isn't us spending millions of dollars being able to build buildings that were way too small for what we needed and and pouring all these resources and all this energy and developing land that we frankly could never really fulfill with where we were. And we decided, you know what? No, the vision's got to be bigger. It's got to be the kingdom. The vision's got to go from the land and it's got to become the kingdom of God. So what did we do? We began to look for an all-in-one facility already built that we didn't have to pour millions and millions of development and permit dollars into. And we were able to get the facility that we're in right now here locally in Elk Grove. But we said again, the vision is not the building. The vision is not the land. The vision is a launching platform to be the kingdom of God to the entire earth. 
that we're to be global, that we're not supposed to simply be, as Jesus said, that we're to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria is the next surrounding geographical area. And then he said to the ends of the earth, and in the same way for Sun Grove Church, we're not just supposed to be local in one little location where a building exists, but that we are to be involved locally, we're to be involved in our state, our nation, and our world. And God has allowed us to do that through church online. God has allowed us to do that through the ministry here that's launching platform. God has allowed us to have a location locally in Elk Grove. God has also allowed us to impact the world through global missions. Why? Why would he adjust the vision? Well, the land would have probably been pretty self-serving. But the plan of God was bigger than Israel's real estate and bigger than Sun Grove's local location. The land is to be leveraged, it's to be flipped in such a way as to bless the world. Paul describes in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, he says this, Was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith? And what he's describing here is he's saying, righteousness that comes by faith will be available to all, but that's through Jesus. It's not through your own effort. It's not through you building a Tower of Babel. It's not through you having the greatest location of all locations. It's the meek, the humble person who gives their life to Jesus. They will be the ones who will, in fact, inherit the land Well, what does a meek person look like? Some of you are scratching your heads. You're highly confused because you realize in your life you're never going to be meek. It's just not you. You're bold. You're loud. You're outspoken. Some of you are like, meek does not describe me and my personality in the least. So if I'm not meek, does that mean I'll inherit the... Yes. Meek is a condition of the heart. It's not a condition of your personality. And I want you to know that meek people stand up and fight for what's right. If you're taking notes today, write this down. Causeless anger is the exact opposite of meekness. There's a lot of anger in our world. There's a lot of frustration in our world. There's a lot of anger being vented in our world. But we have to ask the question, is there a place for righteous anger? Yes. The problem, though, is when we make the definition of justice or dignity proceed from yourself. When you're like, I'm the one who's gonna get angry at certain causes because I'm determining what is valid or what is not. I'm determining what is to fight for and what is not. I'm determining where the line of justice is or where the line of justice isn't. See, the Chaldeans in the Old Testament were condemned by God for moving the line of justice according to their need all the time. They were condemned by God for saying, we'll decide what justice is and we'll decide what cause to stand and fight for. And they made that line move all the time instead of letting God define the line of justice. Right now, there's cultural pressure to legislate new definitions of justice. And sadly, many people get emotional and angry about issues and causes that are simply not biblical. And many Christians fall into the trap. You're getting all upset. You're getting all outspoken about issues that simply aren't biblical. Listen, in Jesus' day, the disciples pressured Jesus to fight back against Rome. They pressured Jesus 
to be the Messiah, to become king. God had in mind king of kings and lord of lords, but the Israeli people had in mind, Jesus, kick the Romans out. You become king. And by the way, since you can create food and do miracles, why don't you just take that food stimulus and give it to the nationals? Give it to the people of Israel. Like this could be easy. If you become an earthly king, all will be made right. And they wanted Jesus to fight for that cause of justice. And Jesus said, no, I'm gonna stretch my hands out. I'm gonna be crucified by the very Romans who occupy our nation. And I'm gonna give my life to cancel out the sins of the world for those who would put their faith and their trust in me. Let me tell you, I want you to gauge your anger. If you have causeless anger, it's the exact opposite of meekness. If you have anger over issues that are not biblical, if you have, are fighting for the cause of justice, but it's not a cause that Jesus would have the kingdom of God fight for, it's time for us to reevaluate. Reevaluate. Because causeless anger is the exact opposite of meekness. Write this down. God defines justice and gives it objective authenticity. God's the one who defines justice. How can he be the one to do it? Because God is the one who's without sin. He is completely just. It's not something that he hopes to attain. It's who he is. It's in his very character. God is, in fact, just. But we have to ask, is there a place for righteous anger? Yeah. But faithful Christ followers must use the measuring stick of justice of God that's found in his word and use his standard to identify injustice. And through his word, we're gonna identify lots of injustices in our world. And when you do, according to the word of God, then it's 100% right to be angry, to have a righteous anger. That's where we use that phrase. I have a righteous anger against this injustice. That's where God is saying the meek suddenly then have a righteous anger. They have the moment and the ability and the cause that lines up with God's definition of justice in scripture. But you've gotta be very careful that you don't mistake your own standard or culture standard of injustice and contradict the heart of God. Because I believe we're in such a media-driven culture right now that many Christians are slowly getting caught up in some of the causes that are not God's cause. Typically, that would be the same angry person who, who says, I've been with you. I've been with the church. But I don't think the church is doing enough. And so then they reject the church. They get angry at the church because the church isn't doing what they think the church ought to do. Just like an Israeli person in Jesus' day was thinking, Jesus, you just should do more. You shouldn't be about the kingdom of God, this thing you're, you're being about, you should be more. And they rejected Jesus. There were many disciples who walked away from Jesus when they realized he was not going to become their local government. He was not going to become their king. We gotta be careful of that. Because when you have anger over issues that don't line up with the kingdom of God and his definition of justice, you run the danger of becoming a Christian zealot. Someone who's saying, God, I wanna use your authority, I wanna use your power, but I wanna use it to fight for a cause that maybe isn't in the heart of God. 
in Matthew chapter 26, it says this, such a great moment. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, by the way, just stop on that phrase. He was in the home of a leper. That would be your modern day COVID victim, okay? He had previously been a leper. God's healed him. But when he was in this guy's home, lepers would have to live outside the city, but now he's here. So he's in the very home of a person who's gone from unhealth to health, a person who's experienced the healing of God firsthand. He's in this man's home. It goes on, it says, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and money given to the poor. Now aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you, did not always, but you will not always have me. And when she poured perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And that's exactly what happened this morning by just reading that passage. What she did has been told all over the world. This woman comes, she takes a very expensive jar of perfume, she pours it on the head of Jesus. In those days, they reclined on their kind of elbow at the table, it was a very low-lying table. They would all recline around it, that's how they would eat. She came up and poured this alabaster jar of perfume on him. And in the other gospels, it describes that they were indignant. And they said, oh, this money should be used for the poor. One of the other gospels describes this that Judas was pretty vocal about it. Remember Judas who betrays Jesus? He was vocal about it. It says because he was the keeper of the money bag and he used to help himself with what came in there. So the question is, is he angry because of the cause of the poor or is he angry because he wanted to pad his own pocket? And Jesus says, you don't understand what she did right there was done for the kingdom of God. It was done to prepare me for my burial, for the greatest work among humanity to save humanity. She has prepared him for the mission for which he came. And right after this happens in scripture, Judas goes away, leaves to betray Jesus for money. When he saw the writing on the wall, that listen, this thing of following Jesus is not gonna serve the cause I'm sold out for, then he left the kingdom of God, he left the company of the blessed, and he went not in meekness, but in his own boldness, he went out and he left Jesus for money to betray him. Listen, when you fight against the kingdom of God for culture's definition of justice, you bring grief on yourself. You'll bring woes upon yourself that lead to regret. And that's exactly what happened to Judas. That after betraying Jesus, he realized what he had done. And he was so overcome with grief that he actually went out and hung himself. God defines justice and gives it objective authenticity. 
So guess what? As disciples, we keep coming to Jesus to learn more about justice. We keep coming to Jesus to learn more about the kingdom of God. Write this down if you're taking notes. Being meek is in harmony with being angry over injustice inflicted on others. Can you be meek and have a righteous anger? Yes. See, those who use God's standard of justice are the meek before God who also struggle and fight for justice among those who are oppressed, justice among those who are downtrodden, justice among those who are sidelined, justice among those who are in need. And it's those meek who inherit the earth. As a church, we, among other things, fight against poverty that we see and medical needs that we see in Guatemala. We fight against injustice that we see in the caste system and in oppression in places like India with the furthest out villages to the least of these, the lowest caste, those who all their lives are prejudiced against. We fight for them. We bring the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus to them. We rescue sex trafficked children and change the course of generations for families. See, being meek is in harmony with being angry over injustice that's inflicted on others. So Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. But he also said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Well, write this down. The blessed hunger and thirst for righteousness. One of the signs of the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And these are really strong images, right? If you've ever been hungry, if you've ever been thirsty, these are incredibly active, strong images that he's using here. He's saying blessed hunger and thirst for righteousness. They describe that deep desire of the blessed for righteousness. Now, it's interesting. Why do the blessed want righteousness so bad? Aren't they the saved? Aren't they already declared righteous by God? Aren't they declared clean? Aren't their sins washed away? Aren't you and I the clean before God? Those who will be clothed in white once we, uh, uh, once we arrive in heaven? Aren't we those righteous people? But why do we still hunger and thirst for righteousness, not only in our lives, but in our world? Why do we do that? Because we still are in a body of flesh. Our spirit has been saved. Our spirit, the real us on the inside, is alive, but we still dwell in a rental called our body. And our body is always gonna want what the flesh wants. Our body is going to want what the world wants. And so there's the tension that we manage throughout our lifetime that we are gonna at times hunger and thirst to be the people we've been declared to be. Why do those who are the blessed, desire righteousness so strongly. Is it an effort to validate themselves? No, not to validate yourself. But you need to understand what righteousness is all about. Write this down. Righteousness is a claim to a relationship. See, people think righteousness is a descriptor of right or wrong acts. But it's not. Righteousness is a claim to a relationship. The blessed have relationship with the Father. The blessed have relationship with the Son. The blessed have relationship with God's Holy Spirit. Righteousness is a claim to relationship. And let me give you a couple points here. 
The righteousness refers to God's mighty acts in history to save. Back when people would look at the Old Testament, they would say, God saved by his righteous right hand. What are they saying? His work of power, his effort to save people, his work in history was out of righteousness. It wasn't just that it was a right act, but that the work itself was righteous. It's a relationship. He's saving for relationship, not just saving to save. Not just doing to do, but it's relationship. Righteousness means being declared righteous. We have been declared righteous through the new covenant that Jesus made on the night he was betrayed. That through his body given, through his blood poured out, people who were unrighteous could make a trade with God for the salvation of their souls, that all of our unrighteousness is given to Jesus and canceled out on the cross, and all of his righteousness, relationship with him, is given to us in exchange. That's what faith does. That's why we come into a relationship with Jesus, because righteousness is a claim to relationship The righteous not only receive it, but now we act with compassion and mercy. We flip what we've received. We've received the mercy of God. We've received God's claim of righteousness, and we're going to act righteously to others. We're going to, in relationship, fight for the righteousness of others. We're going to flip what we ourselves have received. And righteousness is connected to peace. Connected to peace. Isaiah 32, 17 says, the fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. The next four Beatitudes we look at are gonna go deeper into righteousness on a very practical level. But it all starts with Jesus. The only way to trade your works, to trade your Thing into relationship with him. If you're asking the question, how do I step back into relationship with Jesus? It's not by trying harder and doing better. It's by stepping back into relationship. It's stepping back into who you've been declared if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It's coming to abide with him again, to spend time with him in his word, to not trust your own understanding, but to acknowledge him in everything. And he'll make your paths straight. And if you would say that you have never come to faith in Christ, you've never given faith to what Jesus did on the cross that could cancel out your sin, if that's you today, then pray a prayer with me right after me, just like this. Just say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, and that you rose to new life. I ask you to make me a new creation on the inside. Wash me as white as snow. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. And if you prayed that prayer right now, heaven is rejoicing. Angels are rejoicing. People here are rejoicing because you step back into relationship with the only one who can save. And if you prayed that prayer here today locally in Elk Grove, will you just raise your hand? Or if you're online and you made a decision for Jesus, you prayed that prayer, will you let it know in the chat? Just put some emoticons in the chat, put your hand raised in the chat, and we'd love to know that you did that. But right here in the room right now with heads bowed, eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer today, will you raise your hand? Anywhere in the room, right over here, greatest decision you could ever make. 
Awesome. God, we're so grateful because apart from you, we would never know righteousness, which means we'd never know relationship. We would be the opposite of meek. We would be proud, but for you. And so God, we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Will you give it up for what God's doing in and through and among us? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.